Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, August 5th, 2013. On this day in history, in 1861, a terrible thing happened. Abraham Lincoln, the president who freed the slaves, he imposed the first federal income tax by signing the Revenue Act. Dude, just when you think you really know someone. We have a big, diverse, international community of artists, clowns, mimes, lovers, large red monsters, rain-soaked wizards, one-eyed pirates, damsels in distress, damsels who are not in so Joseph, much distress. I want to welcome you and Synetic Theater and many, many to the show from your Kickstarter program, Save the Studio, man. Welcome aboard. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. And what is your position with Synetic Theater? I am going into my third year as a company member. I am a resident teaching artist, and I am the educational program manager for Synetic Theater. Oh, okay. That's a lofty title, man. I wear a lot of hats. I'm told that you're on Kickstarter because you have a problem that you're trying to solve. And what is that problem? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in about September of last year, we lost our longtime training facility that we lovingly called the factory, which was this spot in Sherlington, Virginia, that was also by where our current official kinetic studio is. And the lease is up on our studio, and we lost the factory outright. That area has gone under a lot of great development, and as a result, the price of rent goes up, and being a non-profit theater that operates with a much smaller budget than some of the larger theater companies in the area, we can no longer afford to secure that space. But fortunately, through our relationship with folks over in Crystal City and Tornado, we have secured a lovely facility that is in need of renovation in order to bring it up to code and to transform it into a facility where we can continue to train our company members as well as train the future artists of the DC stage. I was speaking with my doctor yesterday, and uh, it probably doesn't relate to the interview at all, but I was speaking with my doctor yesterday, and I mentioned that about, you know, your theater company. I wasn't exactly sure of the title of your theater company, and then he said the Synetic Theater, and he was like, oh my gosh, he was like, do, do you know how much physical, grueling work that they put into their productions? It's, it's not just merely acting. It's a whole sort of physical boot camp, and this, that, and the third, and... So apparently he is a big fan of you guys, and I didn't—I I didn't even know you guys existed. You know, I love the—I love the theater, but it's not like I really get to go that often. So generally, you do a professional production, and it's about four weeks. You get in and you do the work, and the show goes up uh, in just four weeks' time, which is an intense process in and of itself. But with the fact that we create a whole physical reality and a physical vocabulary that is stylistic and specific to each particular show, we train in those techniques that we will be utilizing in telling this particular story and creating this particular world. And it's very demanding. We do a lot of stuff. It's kind of like if you've ever done CrossFit or interval work, where you go really, really hard for a short period of time and then recover and then go real hard again. That's kind of like some of the sequences we have in our shows where it's just all out. And if you're not, if you don't have your endurance and your stamina and your cardio up, you're going to fall flat in the middle of the sequence. Now, this may not be correct, but I want to ask you, he even told me that he's seen... I'm not sure if it was your theater company, but he said certain Shakespeare productions where they were just all silent and it was just movement on the stage and it was like the most incredible thing he had ever seen. Do you guys engage in any of that? Oh, yeah, that's us. That's all oh, us. Oh, that's you. To my knowledge, there's nobody in the world that does silent Shakespeare. And it's really what has brought the company a great deal of recognition and prestige. And this sort of crazy idea of taking the work of the bard, which is beautiful language, you know, the, you know nobody right. matches it and and drama throughout the centuries, and taking that language and speaking it and translating it through the body. 
it's pretty amazing to watch some of the silent shows, especially if you are very familiar with the plays. It's almost as if you see the words coming out of the body. And you didn't lead with that? You didn't try and save the studio with that piece of wisdom right there you just told me? Well, you know, it's uh, a lot of folks, that's kind of what people think that's all phonetic does, you know? They oh. think it's just silent shows, and that's not the case. Silent shows are actually a small part of, I mean, I, I want to say small, as small as necessarily the right term. It's just not all you do. You want to be known for No, more. no, we do a lot. I mean, out of, you know, there's generally about four shows a season. Right. And typically three out of those four shows, there is dialogue. But we are constantly, as, as a public artist, searching for more ways of mixing and mashing and synthesizing performance styles and methods and modes of storytelling to make a very visceral and emotional experience for the theater goer. So it's not right. so much as sitting back and listening to the beautiful language of Shakespeare as it is kind of feeling the intensity of the actor's movement. I mean, the word synetic, does it mean something special as far as you guys, what you do? Synetic? I mean, besides it symbolizing somehow, I mean, I guess I don't know the exact definition of it, so I'm, I'm, try <laughs> I'm trying to look right, smarter right. by asking a question to say, does, does it really mean something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, synetic, you know, you take the word synthesis and kinetic and you, you mash it up and you get synetic. So it's a synthesis of kinetic art, you know, and you can look at also a projection as a kinetic art. So that's, that's really what it means. I don't know, you made me feel your whole thing, but you not all, you, you even taught me a word, a couple words for today, and, you know, any interview that does that can't be all bad. You know, Shakespeare used to make up words all the time. I mean, there's tons of, tons of words that. that did not exist. Oh, yeah, that, that were not part of a lexicon until Shakespeare kind of crafted it for himself. Let's say save the studio, save the studio. People should know. People should look it up and check it out. It's on Kickstarter. I'm talking with Joseph Carlson. He's the education program manager, company member, and I'm not going to say his whole title because it's too long and we don't really get into all of that. But just say he's the guy who's helping to run the thing on Kickstarter. If you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we will provide, we will pro graciously provide, we will yell out, we will scream to the top of our lungs. Well, maybe we won't do that, but, but we may mine the exact <laughs> meaning of Save the Studio and provide links for Joseph and the Synetic Theater. Uh, it was a pleasure and I'd like to say thank you for coming on the show. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a real honor, a real privilege. Hi, my name is William Hodge. I'm the creator of The Uncanny. The Uncanny is a superhero comic book that I created a little over a year ago, and I've been publishing it through Print On Demand and Indie Planet. This is the culmination of a lifetime love affair with comic books. Welcome to the show, William. Uh, it's good to be here. Could you please tell me about The Uncanny? I have to know. Well, The Uncanny is my take on superheroes. I know in the comic book industry, we have DC and Marvel and we have their superheroes, but I love superheroes and I want to do superheroes. Basically, the Uncanny are a group of people who come together, of course, to help save the world. But my take on superheroes is a little different. Why is that? They didn't get their powers from being an alien or, or an X-gene or some sort of accident. Everyone that turns up in my book has like a super ability or a special ability because it's something that they achieve. Maybe through, you know, knowledge or through discipline, like one of my characters, Ojo, he's the master of the steel skin technique. He's part of a group of, or at least he was part of a group of monks who have developed this technique where they can get their skin to be as hard as metal. And he's one of the very few who've actually achieved that, but also starting to develop complete body armor. But they're not mutants, though. I'm really fascinated with the fact that it seems like human beings, we get better as we go along we get bigger faster and stronger you know like a lot of athletes right how records get broken you know you might have the, the track time you know just say uh, the record is 7.9 seconds but then someone comes along and breaks the record at 7.5 it just seems like we're getting bigger and better and stronger and when the goal is set at a certain point 
we humans seem to be able to evolve and adapt and become better. And you're discounting steroids and all of that. <laughs> well, that's another way that it has been approached in comic books. You know, there's always like the scientists creating the super soldier and things like that. But my characters, they've achieved it because it's something that they've worked hard at. They're real people with honest dreams. Yes. <laughs> Ultimately, I'm showing, you know, a, a more optimistic way of that, you know, we're human beings. It doesn't have to be an excuse. It's something that we can strive to be better. Everything's dystopic, so why are you so hopeful? I think from reading comic books. Comic books have ultimately always had kind of like a positive message. And I guess, you know, Superman would be one of those that did always get that positive message. Even watching The Man of Steel with the way that that ended, I still had a feeling of positivity and hope with that. I'm trying to give you a hard time, but you're <laughs> overwhelming me with kindness. I just try to be a good person, you know, just, I'd just rather say something nice, do something helpful. No, than... no, 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 you're going, you're going too far now. You're going too far. That's just how I was raised. <laughs> now you're bringing, <laughs> now you're bringing child rearing into it. Oh yeah. All right. Our childhood has everything to do with how we are now. So, you know, that's what I believe. If you're going to say all this to me, sounds like you're a dreamer. So what are your dreams, man? What's your dream for your comic book company? I guess it would be like anyone else's, just so that I could make a living doing it. It would be nice if my creations could cross over to other mediums and things like that, but immediately I would like to get it to a point where it's profitable. I do work freelance as a web developer and as a photographer, Right. but it would be, it would be really cool if I know that every day I sit down and I produce a page of my comics and it could make me money. I would just like to make a living doing my comic book. Brings me back to real people with honest dreams. I forget my own promo. <laughs> nah, I, I appreciate that, man. And, and I feel the positivity, man. I feel the positivity. And for anyone out there, I may have tried to give this gentleman a hard time, but I'm a contrarian. That's what I do. But he's killing me with kindness. He's killing me <laughs> softly. What can I say about that except go to kickstarter.com and type in the uncanny, U-N-C-A-N-N-Y. It's a convention special comic book. And if you can't find it there, go to djgrandpa.com and we will back him up with all the links that you need to check out his page. William, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, it was my pleasure. this week's segment of Meet the Crowd, we meet Joy Schaffler, a board member of the crowdfunding think tank, the CF50. She's going to tell us what the CF50 does and how it affects you. Joy, welcome to Meet the Crowd. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. On Meet the Crowd, the story usually goes the same way. Like, Joy, I met you on LinkedIn and I saw that you had a posting about the CF50 and uh, mm -hmm. being a think tank and a, a crowdfunding think tank. And that seemed very exciting to me, even though there's a million and one think tanks, but I, I didn't know of a crowdfunding think tank. So usually when you start a think tank, not to say that you started it, but you have some relation to it, it seems like you're for the better good somehow of the world. So how does the CF50 help the world? What the CF50 is, and this was actually started by Stang Lee, they're really leaders in this space, kind of in the emerging crowdfunding space. And what he wanted to do with the CF50 was to create a think tank where we could take the best practices of crowdfunding from throughout the globe, incorporate academia, incorporate policymakers, incorporate kind of the leaders within this space to get together, you know, take best practices from Australia, from the UK, and really be able to pass those along. So what the CF50 is, is it is truly a global think tank. The membership is very carefully selected. I was very privileged to be able to be selected to be on the board of the CF50, and now to go and select the membership, they're going to be doing 10 people from academia, 10 people who are policymakers, and then 30 people from throughout the globe 
to make up this CF50. On an annual basis, there'll be a conference where we'll come together and actually, you know, really to be a think tank, we'll be able to kind of bounce ideas off of each other and really help each other to make crowdfunding effective and to make it safe and to really get the most of it for the industry and and really build a very strong industry. You know, at its core, crowdfunding is really the marriage of traditional finance and technology, right? But what we need to do is make sure that it is implemented in a way where it's actually useful for entrepreneurs and is safe for the investors as well. This is a loose one, but it almost sounds as though you guys are becoming like the United Nations of crowdfunding or something. Absolutely. We are basically incorporating, you know, Sang's vision and and kind of the vision of the board here is to incorporate people from all over the world and really take the best because, you know, in Australia, they've been crowdfunding for seven years through the ASAP. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, they've been crowdfunding for seven years successfully through the Australian Small Scale Offerings Board. The gentleman who runs that is Paul Meter. And so he's been in charge of the ASOP for and kind of the founder of that. But that has been very successful, and they've been essentially doing securities offerings, you know, for the entrepreneurial community for the last seven years. Wow. In the U.K., it's been legal for three years. Italy, they just legalized it. So there is lessons learned, right? And crowdfunding in itself is a very unifying thing. It's helping it's helping small businesses from all over the world be able to, to get funding no matter where they're from. Right. You guys are part of the wave that's trying to democratize, well, further democratize the whole, because crowdfunding is thought of as democratic anyway. So to further democratize it, to sell it more around the globe, to package it. You said best practices. So that's always cool. And that always leads to a white paper. So. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's one of the, the really cool things that we've found and one of the things that makes us kind of the most proud to be involved is this, if you look at, so my background is actually in securities. I used to be a director of acquisitions at an investment firm. And yes. so I used to raise private equity. I used to, you know, be on the buy side, making the determination of kind of what would be added to the portfolio as well as, you know, go and sell that to the investors. That's a high-stress job. You know, it was fun. It was fabulous. My background's also as an officer in the military, and so I, I don't know what low stress is. <laughs> I thought I saw that on your LinkedIn page. It had something about military or... Yeah, well, that that's very impressive. That's cool. So the mil- so they trained you for this type of environment already. You know, nobody's shooting at you in the, the securities world, so <laughs> I'm um, fine with it. Whatever. <laughs> we used to say that at NPR, like, you know, I'd be driving all things considered, and, you know, the show would crash or something, a big mistake, and everybody's, like, sweating because there's, like, several million people listening. They'd be like, okay, okay, nobody, we crashed, but nobody died. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But what makes me most proud about it is that, you know, so coming from the standard securities world, right, um, the standard private equity world, you see the statistics where, you know, the majority of venture capital and private equity are going to kind of the standard white males, right? Well, if you look at crowdfunding, it's 46% are going to women and minorities, which is phenomenal. We're actually, we're running media for the SCLC, their 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. Now, what's the SCLC? Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So it's the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's March on Washington. And what's really cool is one of the last initiatives that Dr. King worked on before he passed was basically democratizing access to capital for all women and minorities, not just, you know. And so what the SCLC has done is that they've actually picked up the torch there. And the 50th anniversary, there's going to be a big Emancipation of Capital Gala, as well as an educational conference called Kingonomics to really educate the women and minority community on how to access capital, how to succeed in business. That is the great equalizer. Entrepreneurialism is an amazing equalizer. And so that is what gives us the passion here. That is what, you know, just really makes us so proud to be involved in this, really the democratization of access to capital for all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, and what you said about um, the 40 some odd percent minorities and whatever, it's amazing because, you know, this lady from Darker Designs from um, Virgin Islands, she just 
sent us a note this morning saying, I just bought sewing machines for my designers in Ghana. And she was mm-hmm. like, thank you, you know, because she was on the show and she didn't think she was going to make it. But we kept pulling for her and pushing and stuff like that. And so we've been able to help change lives. If I can take maybe maybe just a little small credit for that. That's what's so beautiful about crowdfunding, I think, is that I grew up right in absolute poverty. And mm-hmm. the $10,000 to my mom, who's a seamstress, would have changed her life. You know, it's $5,000 to be able to buy some equipment, like a new sewing machine or, you know, some pieces of equipment to automate some of the things that she was doing by hand or make her life easier or, you know, a little business that would make her revenue, that would have changed her life and changed our life, you know, as her children. And we've seen microfinance through, you know, the Green Foundation, right, for years and other countries make major changes. But what about America, right? We've got a lot of people who would just work their tails off with these opportunities. And so what I think is fabulous is that microfinance making that change because you're able to, you know, people who could never save up that five or $10,000 to do that are now able to have their communities come together. You know, it is the original barn raising. Crowdfunding right. is just barn raising. It is, is giving people the opportunity and the resources to go and make something better of their lives. And that right. is so exciting to to us. And that's why the CF50 is here. And um, it's very powerful. Joy, I mean, I can't say, Joy, you've been a joy to talk to. Let's see. <laughs> <laughs> joy, thank you very much for coming on the show. I feel your enthusiasm. I feel your enthusiasm. And I really appreciate it. From this fight, and a few things I do out of spite. I wish I could say the same for you. What is it I do that so badly bothers you? You silly old man. My name is Olivia De La Cruz. I'm from Schlan, Washington, but I currently live in Seattle. Washington. And uh, I'm a singer-songwriter. Um, I've been traveling with my music and playing music uh, professionally for the last five years, almost about five years. Congratulations on reaching minimum funding on Kickstarter. Welcome to the show. Happy to be on the show. So you're out of Seattle, Washington, right? Yes. I think of Seattle as like a music mecca. Is that true? It's so true. I think, you know, we also have horrible weather constantly, but what I've realized is it kind of makes people stay inside and create. And so, you know, people are always going out to shows and people are always making music. And it's because you can't just be outside having fun in the sun. Now, I watched your Kickstarter video and you spoke about an enthusiasm and excitement to be launching your first Kickstarter program. So how do you feel that turned out for you? Well, I'm just ecstatic that it was successful. I have been just playing music for so long as my living, and I'm kind of like a younger sister, I feel like, to all these Seattle musicians who are more established than I have been. But still, I've been getting my name known for a while and to release this is like it's taken so long but I also got to kind of fine-tune my sounds and my message and everything that I was trying to express in my album I was able to do because I waited so long to record my first album and I think that's also the reason my Kickstarter was so successful because I have been around in the Seattle music scene for a while but I haven't produced anything yet i haven't had a product to give people that represents me you know and now i do so i think it was just not only long awaited by me but also by my friends and my fans You've been playing live a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Five years I've been living off my music. <laughs> wow. Hey, that's big, man. Without a band, though, just acoustic. So. How does it feel to play live? Is it emotional? 
it's it's kind of brings you to life as a musician, really. Playing live is what it's all about. It's really connecting with people. It's expressing yourself. It's releasing emotion. And it's emotionally fulfilling, but also emotionally exhausting. It's both. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. What would you like to say to the people who backed your album? Oh, my gosh. I, they overwhelmed me. I'm so filled with gratitude. I just... I couldn't even believe it, and I absolutely couldn't do it without them. They're everything. They're the reason that I play. I'm so fulfilled and so overwhelmed with joy and gratitude, and I'm going to make the best album <laughs> to, you know, to give back to people. Now, do you cry a lot, like, over your music? Are you very emotional? <laughs> Sometimes. I think I cried the most at the very beginning at the very end of my Kickstarter. <laughs> but I wouldn't say I'm an emotional person, but if I get emotional, it's with joy, not with sadness. Are you a folk musician? Actually, it's funny that you say that. I used to call myself folk all the time. And then this woman that managed my Kickstarter, she said, you're not folk, and don't ever say that again. You're lyrical soul. Because my music is very lyrically based. It's kind of poems or stories about my life or about a perspective that I see. So a lot of the songs are very lyrically based and I sing them with a lot of emotion. But now that the album, I can hear it produced with a band, I think there's it's it's much more soul, sort of Americana. But yeah, I've definitely strayed from being a folk artist even though that's what I kind of envisioned myself for years. Now, how old are you? I'm 24. Seattle and young. That's cool. <laughs> Seattle and young. <laughs> it's like a t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Falling down all the leaves Swept away with the breeze Now lay down on the river bay Till the water covers my head. How does it feel to be an artist? Do you feel supported in this world? I mean, did your family support you as far as your artistic endeavors when you were growing up? I didn't come from a musical family at all. There's actually nobody that plays music in my family. And my mom is, you know, a single mom of three kids. So we're <laughs> just kind of like, raise yourselves. You know, she's very busy. She worked very, very hard for us. Right. But I was given a guitar by somebody she worked for, actually, when I was 12. And after that, it was my calling. Once I wrote my first song, it was so obvious. I was such a young, confused teenage kid. Like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. But after I started playing music, it was such an outlet. And the way people treated me and responded to my music, I just realized that this can help people and it can help me. But it's also beneficial to other people right. it's a trade you know it's an art and I didn't realize how valuable it was I thought I just played guitar for fun and then the more people that encouraged me the more people said that you're going to make it somewhere you're going to do this you're going to be a star one day and that's not really even what I wanted at all but to have people believe in you Right. Especially when I was so young, I knew that I was like, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It feels right. It's what I love to do. And people love what I play. That sounds like a journey, and I can understand that. <laughs> it's been a journey. <laughs> well, I listened to the music on your Kickstarter video, and I was so moved. So that's why I wanted to reach out to you and, you know, sent you the invitation to come on the show. And I'm very thankful that you accepted. Everyone, it's Olivia De La Cruz, this week's musical guest. And to find out more information about her, even though her Kickstarter is over, but there's still a page that has information on it. I call it the fine print. So to read the fine print on her, go to kickstarter.com and type in Olivia De La Cruz, it'll come up. But if you can't find it, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll provide links. Olivia, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. If you go down there, Welcome to the video for 
the science fiction and fantasy anthology Clockwork Universe, Steampunk vs. Aliens. The story behind this anthology is that a good friend of mine, Patricia Bray, uh, both of us... Oh, Joshua Paul Mateer. Sounds French or something. <laughs> yeah, that's often mispronounced uh, French when people try. <laughs> well, it's good to talk to you. Um, welcome on the show. Thank you for having me. Now, Clockwork Universe, Steampunk and Alien Anthology. Yes. Now, I'm going to have to tell you, man, this is a hard sell, and I'm going to tell you why it's a hard sell for me, because I almost was ready to say no more zombies until Halloween, until I saw your project, <laughs> you know? I was about to make a decree, no more zombies until Halloween, and I, I saw yours, and I was like, oh, man, another one, I can't resist it, I gotta push the button. Now, that's just the name of the press, Zombies Need Brains. We actually... uh have a, like, a little group of uh, authors that had a party called Zombies Need Brains, oh, I don't know, five years ago, right? six years ago, something like that. So that's where uh, that name came from. We don't have any uh, plans to do a zombie anthology or a zombie book or anything like that anytime soon. <laughs> oh, okay, so I had it all wrong. That's just the name of your press, your publishing company. Yeah, the Kickstarter is trying to do essentially two things. It's trying to set up a small press that will be called Zombies Need Brains, but that's just the name of the press. Right. The press is going to uh, try to put out a couple anthologies a year because uh, a lot of the anthology markets seem to have dried up recently, and right. uh, I think that's unfortunate. So the first anthology that we would like to put out is called Clockwork Universe and it's Steampunk versus Aliens. No zombies involved. <laughs> man, I'm glad I reached out to you, man. You were the right person to talk to. You cleared it up so concisely. That's cool. That's probably my math background. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that would do it. Now, okay, why is Zombies Need Brains, the publishing company, why are you the right people for the job to do this Steampunk versus Aliens? It's because both Patricia Bray and I were the um, two uh, co-editors for this anthology. We're both in the business. We both have publishing contracts with uh, traditional publishers. I'm published through uh, Daw Books, uh, which is part of Penguin. And Patricia is published through um, Bantam Spectra. So we're both in the field. We have both had our own books published. And then recently, we've also started editing, and we have a couple anthologies out there already uh, that were published by DAW as well. So we have experience writing, we have experience editing, so we're coming from both sides of the table. But this is your first time on Kickstarter. Yes, this is our first time on Kickstarter, and uh, Kickstarter seemed like the perfect medium for uh, getting a bunch of people in the genre together. Okay, you said seemed, but now that you're on it, how has it been? Are the people yelling at you? Are they giving you a hard time? You know, are they helpful? On Kickstarter? Yeah, yeah, the, the community, the crowd. <laughs> no, actually, the crowd has been incredibly uh, supportive of it. I've tried to interact with them as much as I could, like responding to comments. I've sent all of the backers individual email. I mean, literally typing out each email or message. Right. To each one of them thanking them because, because I know it's... it's uh, a tough economy and whatnot, so uh, anybody who's willing to uh, help support little projects like this, I think, really deserves that personal touch. Wow, man. You do know what you're doing, and, and it sounds like you're a stand-up guy doing each one individually. Well, I hope I'm a stand-up guy. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, man, since I'm sharing this line with you. <laughs> you got any name droppers or something? You know, like who may be on this anthology that people would say, oh, I got to get a copy of that. Oh, yeah. We've always tried to get some top-notch authors in our anthologies. So uh, for this one, we actually have committed Scott Lynch, New York Times bestseller, and uh, Shauna McGuire, also New York Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. She writes also under the name Myra Grant. And we've got, let's see, Ginny Koch. We've got Brad Below, Ian Tregellis, Caitlin Kittredge, Gail Z. Martin. So those are the ones that are, have just committed to it. 
We also have like seven or eight other openings in the anthology, uh, and we plan on asking uh, top-notch authors for uh, submissions for those as well. We just didn't have commitments before the Kickstarter started. The book, if anyone wants to check it out, or the proposed anthology, if anyone wants to check it out, go to kickstarter.com, type in Clockwork Universe, and Clockwork is one word. It'll pull up a a very futuristic, steampunk-ish type picture. And you can check out all the rewards below. And if you can't find it there, if you get lost, um, uh, just if you need any help, go to djgrandpa.com and we'll get you on your way and we'll introduce you to his page and you can decide for yourself. Uh, Joshua, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the show and I hope that yours and Patricia's dream turns out well. Well, thank you for uh, having us on the show. Hello, we are here to present you our new indie game, Monochroma. Monochroma is a cinematic puzzle platformer set in an industrial alchemic world. For the record, could you give me a pronouncer on your name so that I can... I'm Barack. Barack Okay, I'll call you Barack because it'll make it easier. Now, you're a global gamer, and I saw your video on Kickstarter, and I saw the people at the end. You have like a little small company, a little small family there. You are in Istanbul, Turkey, right? Yes. Now, is video gaming big business in Istanbul? No, there are not much companies doing game business in Turkey or in Istanbul. It looks as though your game, Monochroma, it looks like it's based on like one of those dystopic type societies, like almost like the world in chaos and everything in ruin, and you have these brothers trying to survive against all odds. Am I correct? Tell me about the game. Uh, it has a dystopian tale, uh, but uh, in the past, uh, not in the future. It's set in the 1950s, an alternate world, so right. we don't have the world war. You're just starting to get my interest. I need to know more. It's a dark and dramatic story told in a very unusual way. You don't find any many dramatic stories in game world. I mean, you know, there are these muscular males and sexy female characters and all these happy endings. But we're doing we're doing the opposite, I think. We're trying to tell something about our current world by using some metaphors in our story. There's a robot company in our game. We think it symbolizes our all the commodities in our life. They're promising if they get one of these robots, their life will be easier. Um, these robots will help them in their homes and will uh, befriend their children. But uh, our story begins with two kids unaware of luxurious life, um, away from the city, having a normal life in nature. Then uh, they discover something about this company, some evil pact. A guy starts chasing them and the story gets complicated. Have you play-tested this game any? I'm trying to figure out, are people drawn to your game? We have a niche community. Not everyone likes Monochroma, but the ones that like it are really attached to games. Right. Because, I mean, they are aware that there aren't many games like this around. So, if I'm interested in a game that's difficult, if I'm interested in a game that's going to be challenging to my mind, if I'm interested in a game that's just not run-of-the-mill like every other cookie-cutter game out there, you're saying I'd be interested in Monochroma? Yes, probably. <laughs> yes, probably. You're quite a salesman, man. You're quite a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like to say that uh, we made the best game. You're just taking the indie route. You're selling a game, but you're not really trying to sell it. You're building <laughs> maybe one of the best platforms, but you're not going to say it's the best platform. I want our fans to actually, by word of mouth, you know? And you're like carrying your brother. It's He's your brother, but he's not heavy type of thing. Why'd you do that? Okay, you're carrying your brother because he's injured in the beginning of the game. Right. Also, he's afraid of the dark. So you have to carry him out around, but uh, he's a burden, so he can't run fast, and he can't jump high enough while carrying him. 
So you have to put him down in, uh, in some puzzles to go further. But the catch is that you can only put him down under light. You can't just leave him and go for yourself? You can't leave him and go around because you're responsible. And if he dies, do I die? Game over. <laughs> Game over. Okay. All right. He's heavy and he's my brother and I must take care of him. I'm talking to Barack. He's from Istanbul. He has his gaming company called Nowhere Studios. And um, he's contrarian. He's not an easy person to hit. I've tried, but he's dodged me this entire interview. I asked him to promote. He says he can't promote. He can't promote. It must be word of mouth. He says you'll probably like the game if you try it. I tried to get him to say, dude, is this game incredible? And he tried to say that I can't say it's incredible because we're not that type of people. But that's okay. Go to kickstarter.com and try it out anyway for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Monochroma, Istanbul. Uh, Barack, thanks for coming on the show, man, and for being such an amiable gentleman. Okay, man. Thank you, DJ Grandpa. Next up is Uva. He's the president of Academy Games. They have a Kickstarter out right now for their newest strategy game, Freedom, the Underground Railroad. Welcome, Uva. In the years before the American Civil War, there was an evangelical awakening in America. People increasingly began questioning the morality of slavery. Collectively, they became known as abolitionists. Being a game publisher and a company, this is a very, very difficult subject for us to, number one, try to portray and portray well, right. but also have to be very careful on how it's portrayed because the struggle that the individual people, the slaves and everything had to do, most people have no idea in today's society. Here you are in 1800 to 1865, which is an era of our game. You have no rights. You have no freedom. You're born in one area. There's no TV, no internet. You are in this area that you know you're not allowed to leave. You have no freedoms. And you make the decision to give everything up, to leave everything you know. The fear, the guts, the fortitude it takes just to take everything on your back, your children, your relatives, whatever, and try to leave for the great unknown. And it isn't like you had a map of America or had a concept of what the world was like. It's just you're leaving. And that is scary as all get out. And that is something that we cannot cover and did not want to cover in this game. What this game was about was from the other side showing the abolitionist movement in America and really the movement and the change from the birth of America and really the turmoil that happened politically and the individual movements of people and organizations in America to bring about change and finally the abolishment of slavery. All right. Should we talk about how the game is played? You can either play it solo, but it's meant for three or four people, and everybody takes on a different role. And it could be the roles of the evangelical movement in America or the churches or from the stock and the financing or the Underground Railroad. And the players strategize together to get funding for the Underground Railroad and like any good game, there has to be tension and resources that are hard to acquire. In this game, it's the funding and the resources. And these resources are then used to, number one, expand the network for the Underground Railroad. Number two, to fund the different movements and get different legislations that will make it easier for you as a group to win the game. Right. 13th Amendment. With then finally also the 13th Amendment, which finally sealed that portion of the progress towards the cup quality at the time. Of course, it took another hundred years for anything concrete to really go forward, but... Um, right, civil rights movement. Exactly. But many Americans have no idea the people that were involved in the abolitionist movement, the organizations, and how expansive it was, and the amount of money that was needed to make it work. This is what we're trying to do with the game. The players have to raise resources. At the same time, they're trying to get different laws enacted, which again, cost money and certain actions. All the while, the game is playing against them by negative or opposition laws coming into effect or opposition 
things happening that happened historically. Do you have Jim Crow or, or the Klan or anything represented somehow? We do not have the Klan represented, no. Um, but we do have the slave catchers and the martial laws that were enacted. In order to win the game, they have to buy a certain amount of abolitionist funding tokens. This means the money and the organization that went into building the movement against the slavery. So that's number one. You need to buy up these support tokens. Right. How do you buy them? By raising funds and doing different things in the games to get money in. As you buy a certain amount of tokens, you can also get money in. You need to fund conductor tokens. And the other part of the game is moving slave tokens, the slaves from the southern plantations and helping them move towards freedom in the north and into Canada. So the game's two-part. You need to help move so many slaves up to freedom. And number two, you have to have so much funding for the support of the abolitionist movement because it really went hand in hand. Right. And by the abolitionist movement, we're very broad in this, and we say that right away. The abolitionist movement includes not only organizations like the Quakers and the different state organizations that grew up, but also individuals that did propaganda through newspapers or build up organizations to help move and find freedom for escaped slaves. So that is both whites, blacks, uh, the free blacks in the North, which was a very, very big moving force. And a lot of people don't realize how much they really, in the big cities, especially in the Northeast, Boston, New York, helped really the movement of a lot of escaped slaves to freedom. Because if you were caught, it, it was not good. And, and the laws in America were enacted where the law enforcement, they had to pull through and help slave catchers catch slaves. And that's what the game really brings to issue. And talking about slavery or in hearing you speak about slavery and the abolitionist movement, I've many times heard about slavery being about business, but it was mainly the business of keeping the slaves, the business of making money off of the slaves, enrichment. But I haven't really heard the part about it was also business or or had to be conducted as a business to raise capital to move and transport these slaves on the Underground Railroad, as well as support the abolitionist movement to get the word out and keep the secrecy. It's almost like it was a business in itself also. You know, every movement needs money. Right. And a lot of people don't realize that societies, a lot of people put their money, their fortune, whole organizations were built up to canvas cities and areas to raise funds and money to help support the movement. That included also disseminating information, sheets, flyers. A lot of people put a lot of time, effort, and also their personal safety on the line. Right. You know, everybody knows about like William Still and Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. Right, the most famous people. Exactly. But, you know, you have so many other people like the Anthony Burns agenda and, and what he went through and Josiah Henson and, and many others, which we try to, you know, touch in the game and, and let people know and, and at least give them a feel for so that they continue learning about it. Right. And then also including people like, you know, Alexander Ross or Robert Purvis or all these whites also who went out of their way and just put everything on the line to fight against something that they didn't feel was just or even, well, it was a moral thing. There was a whole change in, in movement in America that had been going on since really the founding of America. Oh, you said really since the founding of America, not just after slavery began or something like that. What do you mean by that? Well, America almost didn't become America because of the issue of slavery. Right. What Jefferson did in the Declaration of Independence, and he mentions equality and freedom, but then there was so much negotiations behind the scenes to guarantee that slavery would continue in America. And then, of course, we had the Mason-Dixon line where states in the South, it was allowed in the North, it was illegal. Right. So America was almost did not get founded. I mean, it was it was an issue that civil war. That was one of the main reasons. The South says it was different reasons, but it all came down to economics. The South, they felt they needed the free labor to keep their agricultural base growing. 
The only thing I have to ask, which is a little flip, which I shouldn't be flipped, but I'm always flipped. Do you get to own slaves in this story? Oh, no, 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 no. You're abolitionists working to bring about the freedom and change the laws of slavery and bring slaves to freedom in Canada. How do you lose the game if you do not balance your resources? And any game needs this. It has to be engaging. If you do not do it correctly and the slave catchers, which is all the game, does it automatically. Nobody plays this. That would be totally ill-conceived game. It would be wrong. I'd just like to say for anyone out there who sometimes think that I joke too much on the show, that I make fun of people, maybe that I'm kind of mean at times as DJ Grandpa. Well, this interview is not like that. I try to, well, let's just say we show a different side at times. So if you're interested in seeing a different side of life, a different slice of history, Go to kickstarter.com, type in Freedom, the Underground Railroad, by Academy Games. It has a beautiful representation graphically on the screen. You push it, you get to see about the games. You don't get to own any slaves. I did wonder about that. But you get to be abolitionists and facilitators to help bring about a movement, help bring the United States together. Uva, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for your time, and have a great week. give a shout out to an incredible San Fran indie band. Our former guest, Odd Owl, the band with the crazy t-shirt. Their Great West Tour, funded on Kickstarter, is coming to a city near you. To see the complete itinerary, check out their Facebook page, search words, Odd Owl, or go to djgrandpa.com where we'll post links. I'd like to thank all our guests. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Each week, we couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams and to my mentor, The Mumbler, for providing music to DJ Grandpa's Crip. Thanks to Theron Kennedy, our director of marketing, and to Jeffrey Banks and Bertram Zeke, our assistant editors. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is AFU. Thank you.